Welcome back to the program. John Wanamaker, the famous department store magnate, once said that he knew that at least half of his advertising budget was wasted. Problem was, he didn't know which half. For anybody that's in business today, you know how difficult it is to make your product or service stand out among the competition and noise of today's marketplace. It's a lot tougher than it was for Don Draper. Advertising is everywhere. Television, radio, billboards, digital, banners, mobile, native advertising, telemarketing, pop-ups. It's on everything that isn't implanted into us, and that may not be that far away. So what works? What is, in the buzzword of the day, authentic, effective, and creates real return on investment? One of the most powerful tools of the marketer has always been word of mouth. Social media and things like Yelp have only amplified the power of that word of mouth. But is word-of-mouth marketing just some random confluence of events, or can it be shaped, molded, and directed in ways that are both authentic and beneficial to both seller and buyer? That's been the work of our guest, Ted Wright. Ted Wright has been at the forefront of -of word-of-mouth marketing for the past 13 years. He's become a global leader in word-of-mouth marketing with clients on every continent. He's an alumnus of Booz Allen and Hamilton and holds an MBA from the University of Chicago. It is my pleasure to welcome Ted Wright to the program to talk about Fizz, harnessing the power of word-of-mouth marketing to drive brand growth. Ted Wright, thanks so much for joining us. Jeff, thank you for having me. Great to have you. Great to have you here. We often think of -of word-of-mouth marketing as something that just happens, as this kind of strange confluence of events. As your work has proven, this is something that, that one can develop a plan for, a strategy for. Talk about that in the context of being both strategic and authentic. So word of mouth marketing is basically saying to yourself as marketers, hey, what would really be great is if more people would talk about my product who really love my product and would share stories with their friends. So when you're thinking about it in those directions, you think about sort of what are, what are, my, what are my four steps? And the first step is coming up with what is my story. And all throughout Napa, there are all kinds of vineyards with all kinds of different stories. And the most successful vineyards and the most successful winemakers are those people that actually say, okay, this is my story. Whether you're Ravenswood or you're Gunlock Banshu or wherever you are up and down the highway, you have figured out what it is that your story about your wine or your vineyard would like to be. And everything that you do goes in that direction towards sharing that story. So a story, you know, at its basic components, has three components. Is that story interesting? Is that story relevant? And is that story authentic? If it's interesting, relevant, and authentic, it will get shared. And to your point, uh, designing your story to be shared is what someone really wants to think about as their base of building an entire marketing plan. How different is the process when you're talking about something as ephemeral, for example, and creating a story for wine or perfume or something where the story is the essence of it as opposed to a a specific product like a vacuum cleaner or a floor sweeper? So every product that is worth talking about has a story. Sometimes that story can be about 
uh, the maker of a product and why he or she decided to make that product, and therefore these are the qual- this is the quality or these is the this is the effort that they're taking for that, and voila, here is my thing. So vacuum cleaners have a story about oh it picks up dirt or it doesn't pick up dirt or whatever. Uh, wines or perfumes have a story like if you taste this, this is what you will taste, and this is. This is the romance of that, and this is what's going on with this product, and this is how you should feel. Perfumes have a story, whether it's actually about what the product is doing or how the product makes you feel, or even more importantly, how you think you are perceived because you are using this product. I mean, lots of times people have the story about a brand is, hey, you are being perceived by the rest of the people around you in X way because you are using this product. I suppose the penultimate example of that, where a a specific product and a story and an image and the perception all come together, the the apotheosis of this kind of approach really is Apple. So it would be an interesting question. You know, which Apple are you talking about, right? Uh, Because... There was the the early Apple where you had, this was a really good computer, and then the story that Steve Jobs and Wozniak were putting out there was like, here's a really good computer, look at all these really interesting things you can do. And Jobs was, you know, as we know from Walter Isaacson's book and some other stuff and our own personal experiences that we had with the brand or maybe out there where he had actually had experiences with him as a person, He had a vision of where he wanted to take this, and he was going to bring everybody along. But that wasn't always true for all Apple products. I mean, I love Apple. There's lots of good stuff uh, they do. But then there's also things like the Newton, which by all intents and purposes was not a very good product. And yet it had a story, and Apple tried to tell a story about it. But what was interesting about the Newton, which is very different from the iPod, was that Newton really failed to deliver on what that story was, and the iPod didn't, right? And its functional case, the iPod was, you can put every song that you've ever wanted to listen to on this one little device, and you can put headphones in, and you can hear it forever, and that's what this little thing is. And so carry around your entire CD collection, 10,000 songs or whatever you have on this little device, and that's the only one you need. And they delivered against that. In fact, there's some design stories that are told about the iPod that the reason it has that little click in the circular and the circular way you were searching was that so you would be actively doing something on the device that no one had ever seen somebody do before. So that there was conversation actually embedded in the design of the device. The Newton not only did it not really deliver against this promise, but there was nothing that was distinguishing it from a design perspective that automatically created a reason to talk about it. And so Apple is definitely that way. There's lots of other brands that are that are that are really thinking about word of mouth and conversation from the get go. But your Apple example is a very interesting one. How do you reconcile taking that one step further? this idea that word of mouth to be successful has to rely, as you talk about it, on pull, on consumer requests, on this peer-to-peer discussion. How do you reconcile that with the idea sometimes that consumers and people don't really know what it is that they want? Um, so 
just to drop into just bringing the law, um, there was a Supreme Court justice that famously defined pornography as he didn't know it what it was until he saw it. Um, I think consumers are like that as well. If you look at the history of Lytton and the microwave, before they invented the microwave oven, nobody knew that they wanted the microwave oven. And then when they looked at it, they're like, oh, that would be cool. I should totally have that. Um, and that is because nobody had really thought that they could cook dinner in 12 minutes or they could reheat something in 90 seconds. But who wouldn't want necessarily that to be that process that used to take 10 or 15 minutes and you could ruin your food and reheating it if you didn't pay close attention to it. Now, I'm never going to ruin my food again and I can do it in, you know, one fifth of the time that it used to take. If you asked everybody, they would totally want that. Some things are so surprising, like, I didn't know I could get that. Uh, quite honestly, doctors were also like that with the MRI machine. I mean, would they love the original, very original MRI machines? They're like, this is awesome. But it was so, it was such a leap forward that they didn't really know. So I'm not necessarily sure that consumers don't know what they want. Sometimes things are just such a far leap ahead that they had never considered that that was a possibility. I think we're seeing that with electric cars now. Talk a little bit about the way word-of-mouth marketing has changed, even in the 13 years or so that you've been actively engaged in it. During that period, things like social networking and Yelp, as I mentioned earlier, and so much technology has entered into the equation. How has that changed the landscape for word-of-mouth marketing? So word-of-mouth marketing is really interesting because it both has and has not changed a lot in like the last 7,000 years. So there are, we think that there are, like we know that there are, you know, clay tablets back from the Sumerian period where one person was telling another person about some product or service that they loved and they were scrolling on this clay tablet and that clay tablet was then posted. So there, the question is not, has the process changed about a certain percentage of the consumer base, which just runs around 10%, are those that lead everybody else into buying all of the products. What has happened in the last 10, 12, 15 years is that the tools that uh, you can use to share a message have, be have become more numerous, and the cost of using those tools uh, has declined. Uh, so just an old personal example, my grandfather served in World War II and I have some of the telegrams that he sent to my grandmother. And I one day just counted up how many, and they are 140 characters or less. A couple of them are. A couple of them are a little longer. And that's because you had to pay by the word. Also, interestingly, the cost of that actually right on the document is noted, and you could do cheaper if you sent it overnight versus you could send it during the day, during <laughs> sort of prime time. If you think about that and you think about a tweet right now, the cost of doing an individual tweet is, is almost infinitesimally small. And 50 years ago, that same cost of sending that same information, that same length of time, was a serious financial consideration for somebody or something you just couldn't easily brush off. So what has happened with technology in communication, the same thing has happened with technology everywhere else. It really starts to explode. You can do the same thing for less and less resources over time. So what you have seen is you have seen an explosion of the variety of tools that people can use. But as Forrester just pointed out last, as recently mm -hmm. as last week, 
the efficacy of some tools is very different than the efficacy of others. In particular, digital tools are so much less effective in the North American market space and actually converting somebody to a sale than a face-to-face -face conversation. We know from the data that 7 out of 10 conversations from a word-of-mouth marketing perspective, that so a conversation is about a branded product or service that convert into either trial or sale. 7 out of 10 of those are face-to-face. -face. 2 out of 10 are still on the, over the phone. Only 1 in 10 is through a digital medium like Facebook or Twitter or Pinterest or Instagram or any of the other tools. So what's been fascinating is as these tools have become more and more ubiquitous and people are using them more and more often, still it is the same face-to-face that is really driving commerce that has been driving commerce for decades, if not centuries. And are you finding that this is equally true across generations at this point? So as the father of an 11-year-old turning 12-year-old, I definitely see people in his age group using digital more than other people. The math on this, all of the studies are that the 7 out of 10 conversations holds across the current buying generation. And it's basically, we believe, there's some research that's been currently being conducted by others right now on this, but if you look at it, there are 56, 57 different ways that somebody communicates to somebody from a face-to-face -face perspective. And that's everything from hand gestures to voice timbre to posture to micro-expressions of the face to the actual words that they're using. Um, digital has three, maybe four different ways uh, you can communicate, maybe 10 if you, if you start parsing out different types of emojis. Um, and people have the most experience somebody could have communicating in a digital way is 20 years. Um, the, we have been, as a, as a species, we've been communicating to each other face-to-face -face for at least 8,000 years that we know of. So there's a lot of cultural, there's a lot of teaching, there's a lot of biology that goes into being an effective communicator. So. In 50 years, will it be much more digital? Probably. Um, is there much more efficiency of communication and efficiency of language um, when you're face-to-face -face with somebody? There is. There's a lot more. And so that is just what, for the North American market space, that is what these influencers, these people who love to share stories with their friends, and those, thing, those same conversations are driving a huge majority of the commerce that goes on in the United States. It's still right now is still face-to-face -face with digital growing, but even those leaders in digital like Facebook and Twitter have got all kinds of data that they share publicly that show that the effectiveness of a face-to-face -face conversation is around a couple orders of magnitude more than a digital conversation. The overlay to all of this that makes this kind of work all the more critical today is that in the past 10 years we have seen this remarkable drop in the efficacy of traditional broadcast advertising, uh, that's absolutely that's absolutely correct. There's not a there's not a person who buys broadcast and tries to get their message out there who will say, "Gosh, this is so much more effective than it used to be." <laughs> um, and and at the at the C level where we're dealing with our brand owners or whatever, we hear all the times like, "Hey, 
I used to spend this much money to buy this much advertising, and I would get this kind of return. And since the mid-90s, that, has, that rate of return has decayed. And for many people now, broadcast as, as the big lever that you, can use, that you can pull in order to increase sales, those opportunities are really gone. And there's a couple of reasons. One, fracture of media. There's just so many other choices. So there's the same population spread out over many different ways of getting your information. Um, and the other is in the late 90s when broadcast started to be less effective, those purchasers of, of message, those broad, those people, those brands and products and services that were buying messages out there, they just ended up buying many more messages. So in the mid-90s, the average North American got hit with about 2,300 commercial messages a day. Today, that number exceeds 14,000. So, Jeff, what you've got is you've got more messages impacting every North American than they can possibly process in a single day. So just as a population, we've started to shut down, and that has just become broadcast, has become white noise, whether that's pop-up ads or that's uh, push notifications on your phone, or that's an email, or whatever that is. And so we have turned away from those things, including television and sadly radio. And they are starting, U.S. consumers are just starting to rely on their friends. They're starting to rely on conversations. The other interesting things that you mentioned, technology, Jeff, is what has also happened is confirmation of information that they get, that U.S. consumers get to face-to-face. Now they have one easy place in the office. We call it the magic box. But basically, you're talking about our friends at Google and other people that have taken all the information in the world and categorized it. So if your friend says, hey, this is really awesome, you can go and via Yelp or via Amazon or via whatever it is that you're going, you can either get confirmation or you can get uh, contrary information, and then you can take that. That becomes the next part of your purchase decision where that didn't really exist before broadband was ubiquitous in the United States, so figure the late 90s. Uh, so that's really where technology and face-to-face really um, work, is face-to-face starts it confirming or conflicting information via the net, and then somebody makes a purchase decision. You've mentioned a couple of times North America in the context of some of the things we've been talking about. Given that we live in a global marketplace, talk about the ways in which you see this being different in other parts of the globe. So at my core, I'm a recovering physicist and mathematician. So I really like data. That really sets me up to give and get to the art part of this. So I talk about North America because the most third-party research and data has been done there. When you get out into the other populations of the world, this is how we see it. If you're in a mature media market, which as we define is somebody who has had ubiquitous color television in their marketplace for at least 35 years, once you hit that 35th year, the decay rate of the efficacy of broadcast starts to accelerate. And it takes about 10 years to get to sort of where it is in North America today, which is useful, but so much less useful than it used to be. So those places like Western Europe, Japan, the Asian city-states, Australia, those places are very much like where, where, where we are in North America, if not a little bit behind. There are huge parts of the world that are now seeing industrialization and 
modernization at a much faster rate than they were just 25 years ago, and they've never seen modern marketing. And so it's if you're in central China, you know, 600 kilometers from anywhere else that's never had, you know, color television, and all of a sudden it comes into your part of the world, you're like, wow, this is really cool. It's like the United States in the mid-1950s. Um, and there's seven or 800 million people that are like that, so there's huge, big markets. Um, I know a couple of old broadcast marketers and uh, advertising people, and they basically work in Kurdistan now. Huge opportunities for them in Kurdistan because nobody in that part of the world has really seen modern marketing before as it was done in the 80s and the 90s. One of the things that's so interesting, though, is that even traditional marketing has to change in these environments because what you're seeing in much of the developing world is this kind of skip-over effect that we've seen, for example, with telephones in that they may never have traditional color television the same as they never will have traditional landlines it will skip over and broadband will be the key delivery system for entertainment and it'll be a totally different equation than traditional broadcast was in this country and in mature markets so you bring up a really good point jeff um and what we're seeing is so for us what we're seeing is less of a skip over and more of a consolidation of the timeline to where in the united states or in the United Kingdom, television had a reign running in the decades where you'd be lucky to get 10, maybe 15 years in some of these markets because they're just going so much more quickly because there are just so many other opportunities. And people can, to your phrase, they can skip, but they just skip so much faster uh, through it. So instead of skipping over, it's just, okay, I get that, yes, and now here's the better thing uh, because it's out there and it's obvious. And it also becomes less expensive. I mean, I don't know if anybody has priced large televisions recently, but um, what was thousands of dollars three years right. ago is now, you know, on sale at Walmart uh, as a doorbuster tomorrow right. for a couple hundred bucks. Talk a little bit about the importance and the problems faced in narrow casting with respect to word of mouth, because it requires better data better information, better understanding of the marketplace, and arguably a lot more work in order to reach those narrower components. So at this point, you're correct, Jeff. In the North American market space, it's very tough to, quote, put one by um, an individual consumer. Um, say what you will about how we are as a society and different things that we need to do better, but on an individual basis, People who live in North America are very experienced and therefore very smart uh, in when it comes to making decisions about how to use their money. And they are that way because we are the most heavily marketed to population on the entire planet. Uh, so when it comes to narrow casting and the ability, uh, look, a story has to be interesting so an influencer will pick it up and, and learn about it. Remember, when we say influencers, we're talking about people who have particular personality traits, not just because they're an awesome radio host on a really great station, but because they are on TV or they're a celebrity. It's because they have like to try new things because they're new. They like to share stories with their friends and they're intrinsically motivated. So when those three personality traits are major in somebody, what they do is they go and they find stuff out about things that they are interested in. They go and they find information about things that they're interested in. 
And then they go and they package up these stories and in the back of their mind, they're always thinking, ooh, who are the people I know would really love to hear about this? And then they choose socially appropriate opportunities in order to share that information. And then that information shows up in such a way that it's already so well curated and well tailored to the person that's getting that information. They see a lot of value in that. So an influencer will never share a story with somebody that the influencer doesn't think is going to be interested in. And because an influencer loves to share stories with their friends, they are very well practiced at figuring out who would want what information. So they go and share that. So the Wanamaker quote that you started at the beginning, influencers don't share stories with people and half of them are wasted because that would go against what it is they're trying to accomplish, which is they love to share stories with their friends. And so the better they are at it and the more interesting and the more relevant that information, the more opportunities they get to do that. So it is a, a virtuous circle which marketers can be a part of, but only if their story is accepted into that network. In looking at it in, in a larger framework, finally, is there a chicken or the egg thing that goes on here? Does that story, those stories that you're talking about, be, to be effective, have to be part of a larger meme, have a larger understanding of what's going on in the social fabric, or do those stories help to create that social fabric? The stories go to not only create, but also to embellish and to decorate that social fabric uh, that, you, that you brought up. Stories are the currency by which individuals share information around at this point. It is, it is the most effective way of sharing information. It is also the most fun way for influencers. It's not about facts and figures. It is about here is this story. So stories create the environment by which all the rest of those social pieces can coalesce and can become an actual culture. Okay. So the storytellers, these influencers, are very integral to the way that we all get information. And because they're integral, we are all pinging off of them all the time, asking them questions, but also ready to receive their information when they choose to share it. Ted Wright, his book is Fizz, Harnessing the Power of Word-of-Mouth Marketing to Drive Brand Growth. Ted, I thank you so much for spending time with us today. Jeff, thank you so much. Thank you. We'll take a break. I'll be right back.